Welcome, future doctors, to another episode of the Future Minority Doctor Podcast with Dr. Sulma and Marina, where we bring you conversations to empower and inspire you to contribute to your community and the world by becoming a doctor. Hello, future minority doctors. Thank you so much for joining us for today's episode. We know it's been a while since we recorded our last topic episode. It's been a busy summer. We've just had things going on, but we want to welcome you back to more topic episodes. And today we have a special topic to discuss. That's the topic of self-care. Now, I know what some of you might be thinking. Oh, no, not another person here to tell me that I should be doing yoga and drinking green smoothies and getting massages every week to take care of myself. Please, who has the time or the money for that? But before you stop listening and skip this episode, please just give us a chance. Trust us, we've been there before. We've had people give us totally unrealistic advice about self-care, and we definitely rolled our eyes about it and then just ignored it. In fact, I remember one time in residency, you know, residency's rough, you're working 80-hour weeks, you're not sleeping enough a lot of the time, you're so exhausted when you get home. So that was the case for me. And one day, one weekend, the residents had an annual retreat where we would get together and socialize and hear from some guest lectures. Our program director knew that we were all exhausted and a bit burned out from residency. So she decided to invite a faculty member to give a lecture about work-life balance, or in other words, self-care. The faculty member giving the lecture, she was a female attending doctor that we all really loved. She was one of our favorites. But she was older in her late 60s, and she had been a successful doctor for many decades. Well, guess what kind of advice she had for us? I'm not kidding you. She talked about how she hired a housekeeper to do the housework that she didn't have time to do because she preferred to go running and exercise and spend time with her grandchildren rather than clean. I don't even remember all the other things she said because when she got to that part, honestly, I just stopped listening. I was barely getting by on a resident salary. I was supporting my husband. I was paying back student loans. And here she was telling me that I should hire a housekeeper. Seriously, as if I had extra money lying around to spend on that. And I actually laugh about it now because it just goes to show how clueless even someone who's really nice can be about this kind of topic. Although it's actually interesting, I do hire a housekeeper now (laughs) to help me out. But the financial situation that I'm in right now is totally different from what it was when I was a medical student and a resident. Dr. Zulma, I'm sure you've had similar experiences with people offering totally useless or clueless advice about self-care. Can you remember anything specific? I can. Um, I have to agree with you. A lot of the self-care usually had to do with spending money to get it, just Mm -hmm. like you mentioned. I totally couldn't afford all those things in high school, college, medical school, or even residency. I would hear about hiring a housekeeper just like you did, getting massages, um, paying someone to cook meals, and even, oh, just going shopping to buy myself something. Mm -hmm. But little did they know that I rarely even went out to eat. I had working family and friends that would actually cook meals for me so that I can freeze them and just warm them up after to help me save money. I had friends who would let me borrow money as well. And I actually deferred making school loan payments because I was barely getting by. I remember even just calculating like how far my gas would go. So that way I would have enough money for that too, to last me for the week. I will say though, that um, 
when it comes to self-care, it will evolve. What you do as a high school, college, or medical resident will evolve. It's different as you progress into a profession of what self-care actually really is. But like Dr. Marina said, today, I think it'll be important to talk about the things that you can do, whether you're a high school student, college student, medical student, or resident. Absolutely. Totally agree. And that's a good point that it will evolve over your lifetime. But the point is, we're not here to give you clueless advice about how to take better care of yourself. We're here to give you a few good pointers about ways that you can realistically, right now, today, start to take better care of yourself. Yes. And it's just really general advice that you can apply to your own specific situation. So first, we want to clarify something. Why should we even care about self-care? And along with that, what does self-care actually mean? So if you're going into a caring profession like medicine, it means that you're going to be helping a lot of people during your life. In fact, during your college pre-med years, you'll probably have a lot of volunteer activities that involve taking care of people. For example, you might work as a phlebotomist or a medical assistant, or you might become a translator or a patient advocate at a local free clinic, or you might be a tutor or a teaching assistant. These activities are important because they show admissions committees that you are truly committed to service because being a doctor involves a lot of service, even if you do eventually get paid for it. But pay attention here. In order to take care of others properly, it is so, so important to learn to take care of yourself. If you've ever flown on a plane, which maybe some of you have, you've heard the announcement at the beginning of the flight where the flight attendant will tell you how to use the oxygen masks that fall from the ceiling in the case of an emergency. In that announcement, they always tell you, put on your oxygen mask first before trying to assist other people, including your own children. So taking care of yourself or self-care means doing the things necessary to make sure that you are physically and mentally in a healthy place so that you can be your best self and give the best of yourself to other people. Now, it might seem selfish to take care of yourself before taking care of other people, but it's actually the opposite, in my opinion. By taking care of yourself first and foremost, you are actually enabling yourself to function at your very best so that you can help take good care of others. Dr. Zuma, have you ever known anyone who spends their life giving, giving, giving? to other people, but never really takes time to take care of themselves. Yeah, I I think that most mothers and women in general tend to do this often. I saw it in my own mom and still till today see it in many of my friends and family members as well. That traditional societal role to be the caretaker when you are a mother or a wife, I would say, really focuses on caring for others and not yourself. And then to make matters even worse, the culture of being the mother or wife, also, um, it enables this idea that you should put your husband, your partner, your children first before yourself. And if you ever put yourself first, then you're considered to be selfish. Uh So being Latina, this for sure is the case. I mean, I've gotten comments made to me by family because I chose to exercise and just do some order out pickup food instead of picking up my kids from daycare and going straight home to cook. But luckily for me, my husband is not traditional like this. He actually encourages me to do self-care 
and constantly reassures me, the kids will be okay if you take care of yourself first. Uh huh. That's great. And that's great to have a supportive spouse. It's really important. For me, my mom, who was Latina, she was an example of someone who could have used more self-care in her life. I lost my mom to cancer two years ago, which was totally heartbreaking. My mom was an incredible person. She raised five children. She went back to school in her 30s and became a teacher while she was raising us. And she was so good at teaching young kids to read that she actually became a literacy coach who helped to train other teachers to teach reading and writing. She was also a fantastic cook. She was a seamstress, an artist. She would always stay late at work, decorating her classroom or preparing lesson plans or helping students or parents or other teachers. She would often also be up late at night. I remember when I was a kid, like hearing the sewing machine going downstairs because she was up late either making clothes for us or later when we were all grown up, she would make gifts for her friends or family or her coworkers. She was also really involved in church and was often planning activities or cooking meals for people in need. But because she was always so busy taking care of her family and other people at work and at church, she rarely had time to get enough sleep, eat well, or really get much physical exercise. And when she was in her 50s, those habits started to really catch up with her. She developed thyroid problems, heart disease, and eventually the cancer that took her life. When I think about my mom's life, I'm in awe of everything that she accomplished, and I'm so grateful for everything that she taught me. But really, one of the lessons that her life has taught me is to take care of myself so that I can be strong enough and live long enough to accomplish the things that I've set out to do in my life, including serving other people as a doctor, hopefully for many decades to come. If you're listening to this podcast, you're most likely someone who is strongly committed to serving others through your life and career as a doctor. We want that passion for service to stay burning bright inside of you. But we also want you to know how important it is to take care of yourself in the process of serving others. Taking care of yourself will enable you to serve others better for a longer time. We don't want you burning out completely or suffering from health consequences when you're still young. So with that in mind, what are three things that you can start doing to take better care of yourself and prepare yourself for a long life of learning and of service? So what's our self-care tip number one, Dr. Zulma? Get enough sleep. And I repeat, get enough sleep. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. When it comes to sleep, we cannot emphasize this enough. Try your best to get enough sleep. Sleep is so important for your body and your brain to be able to function at their best. If you guys haven't heard our episode number 18 on improving your memory, please go back and listen to that. We spent a good part of that episode discussing why sleep is important for learning and memory. And as you know, learning and memory is critically important to being a successful pre-med student. Yes. Now, before you roll your eyes at us, because we know some of you want to roll your eyes at us about getting more sleep, we do know what you're thinking. You're probably thinking, I have a million things to do. I go to school full time. I work one or maybe two or three jobs. I have family or kids to help take care of. I have sports. I have volunteer activities. I have to study for the MCAT. I like to spend time with friends, all of this stuff. So how can I possibly get more sleep? with such a busy life. 
trust me, we hear you. We have been there. We know how hard it is. But we also want to make sure that you understand how truly important sleep is. I think many of us take the attitude that sleep is important, but kind of optional. We think we can get by with less sleep if we just drink enough coffee or we have enough adrenaline running through our system. I've even heard some people use the sarcastic expression, I'll sleep when I die. We understand that you're not always going to get a perfect night's sleep every night. In fact, we don't either. We understand that sometimes you have to work more than you want to to survive, and that might come at the cost of sleep. We understand that sometimes you'll have to pull an all-nighter to get that project done or to finish studying for that midterm or final. We understand that some of you have children and that they sometimes get colicky or sick, and you might have to stay up with them all night. We know that depression, anxiety, relationship problems, restless legs, sleep apnea, or a noisy roommate can make it challenging to get sleep. But all we're saying is this, do your best to prioritize getting enough sleep. If there's anything that you can cut back on in your life to let you get a little bit more sleep, then please do it. Even little changes like getting an extra 15 or 30 minutes of sleep per night or making time for like a 30 minute nap in the middle of the day, those things can make a big difference. Look at everything that's packed into your weekly schedule and ask yourself, is this truly important? So look at each item, each thing you've got in there. And is it truly important? If it is important, is it important enough to cause me to sacrifice my sleep and therefore my health? So if one of the things you do, for example, is taking care of your kids. I mean, that's pretty dang important. (laughs) That's not something that you can easily sacrifice. But maybe, maybe you can ask a neighbor or a family member to drop them off at school. Is it something that you absolutely have to do, right? That's just an example. Or maybe you're doing like five volunteer activities. Like, do you really have to be doing all five? Are there one or two that you can drop and still be very satisfied and get the stuff on your resume that you need with those three other activities. Um, Another question to ask yourself is, is there anything in my schedule that I can give up for now, but make time for later? So for example, if you, you decided to take three science classes this semester, and you're finding a few weeks into the semester that, oh my gosh, it's just so much, you know, microbiology and organic chemistry and physics, like I just can't do it all. I can't keep up. This is too hard then maybe you can drop one of those and take it another semester. So just really ask yourself, do I really have to be doing everything that I'm doing? Is there another way? Can some of it wait until later? Another question is, is there anything that I'm doing that I can delegate to someone else? Or are there people that I can reach out to for help or support to help me manage my long to-do list? So Dr. Zulma, you mentioned that during residency or med school, you had some family members that would help you by cooking meals Mm -hmm. that you could freeze. Is that right? Yeah, it was very helpful because uh, it would save me time and having to cook myself. And since my budget was so limited, I couldn't just go and buy food all the time for all of my meals. So I had a friend or and like my mom, they would make meals, put them in Tupperware, and then I would just stack them in my freezer and just do reheating. Uh Uh-huh. That really opened up more time because instead of uh, cooking, what I would do, especially in medical school, I'd be able to use an hour to go work out. And that way I would get home, just use a microwave to reheat and again, and then be able to go to bed on time. Exactly. 
sometimes we try to be like super people and try to think like, no, I don't want to ask for help. Like I have to do this on my own. But like, it's okay to ask for help sometimes get creative about like, who can help me with what? And even if not everyone says yes, some people will be willing to help you out and don't be afraid to ask. Mm -hmm. Another question is what would realistically happen if I let go of this thing or activity? Sometimes we tend to catastrophize. So let's say you're doing like three volunteer activities or taking those three science classes. And you're like, oh, if I if I let go of my free clinic or if I let go of my physics class, like it's going to throw me completely off track. And then I'm not going to have like my application ready to go in two years. And then I'm it's not going to look good and blah, blah, blah. So your mind can kind of go crazy places. (laughs) (laughs) We tend to make a lot of assumptions that we don't even question. So really ask yourself, like, what will realistically happen? If I let go of this thing, is it truly going to be a catastrophe or is it going to be just fine? So calm, you know, like practice calming your mind down and, and thinking through it realistically. And then another question is, if you know you just can't get enough sleep at night because you truly have too much to do and you can't let go of enough of it, is there any way to schedule a 30 minute nap in the middle of the day, at least on a few days during the week? Because studies have shown that even taking a 30 minute nap in the middle of the day can really help rejuvenate you and help you to keep going. Yeah, I'd like to add to that. um, Just cautioning that if you do do daytime naps, keep it short. Because if you sleep too long, it will disrupt your nighttime sleep where it comes and you won't be sleepy at a decent time. And then you're falling asleep at one or two in the morning. And then you have to be up at six or seven it could really disrupt. But I think short naps are good. Just and put a timer on do not sleep hour two or three hours because it will definitely disrupt your your nighttime sleeping. Yes, that's a great point. So Dr. Zulma, I'm curious, if you were to look back at your schedule during college, do you think that there are some things you could have taken out of your schedule or modified (laughs) in order to help you sleep more? I laugh at that because I think in every sense of the word, yes. I struggled with keeping a schedule just because I didn't know how to keep a schedule. So I think if I would have known what setting a schedule was like, that would have tremendously helped. Uh, I was too over-involved in a lot of campus organizations. And then I would say yes to everything. I overcommitted. And and I have to say my sleep was what was sacrificed. I was also a social butterfly. So I always had plans. I had a friend who would joke around and say that say that I had too many friends that eventually I would just need to schedule in time to make time for friends. Uh-huh. Uh, while I believe having friendships is extremely important, I didn't balance my socializing time well to ensure that I was studying enough and sleeping enough. And this, uh, I'm referring to my college years. I did learn. Um, I think by the time I got to medical school, I definitely changed and I had a balanced schedule at that point. I was actually sleeping better in medical school than I did in undergrad. And uh, I would ensure that for the most part, I was sleeping eight to nine hours every single night. Um, With the exceptions, as you mentioned, Dr. Marina, if it was test time, exam time, then I might just, you know, pull it, go to bed later. Usually I'd stay up to one or two in the morning. But for the most part, I made sure that I had my sleeping time because it really helped with my memory. Is, and I did notice that. Yeah. 
I think, you know, the same for me looking back, there are things I could have cut back. And especially in the beginning of college, like I, I was really ambitious and I wanted to take 20 credits. And I was making these schedules for myself that were totally unrealistic. It was like, I'm going to get up at five in the morning and then my alarm would go off at five and I would totally hit the snooze button. And my roommate was pissed at me because she was waking up at 5 a.m. and couldn't go back to sleep. So I, you know, I was trying to take on way too much. And if I could go back in time, I would (laughs) tell myself, like, just chill, you know, be realistic about what you can do. You can't do it all, all at once anyway. Like eventually, yeah, if you, if you spread it out, you're going to get it done, but don't try to take on too much. And yeah, and trying to do too much, it ended up like, you know, I had to pull all nighters sometimes in order to like get that assignment in at the last minute or study for that final. And that's not fun. That's really stressful. Oh yeah. (laughs) I could have definitely done a better job just being realistic and like being nice to myself and like doing what I could realistically do. Mm -hmm. All right. You might be wondering how much sleep do you actually need? For most people in their late teens or their early 20s, you need about eight to nine hours of sleep per night. But some people can get away with six or seven and feel well rested. And please know, I say some people, it's actually a minority of people. (laughs) Most of us really do need eight-ish hours of sleep at night. And the Mm -hmm. younger you are, the more sleep you need. So if you are still in your teens or early 20s, you probably need closer to nine. Mm -hmm. I personally know I need about eight hours of solid sleep at night to function at my best. If I only sleep six hours one night, then I know that I will need to sleep two extra hours the next night to kind of catch up or a later night. In fact, did you know that there's actually something called sleep debt? I learned about this in college and I was kind of blown away by it. Dr. Zuma, can you explain what sleep debt is? Of course. It's surprising, but it makes sense if you think about it. So if your body naturally needs eight hours of sleep each night, but you're only getting six, then when vacation finally rolls around, you might discover that all you want to do is sleep. Yes, guilty myself. (laughs) (laughs) This is because sleep works a little like a bank balance. If your bank is charging you $8 a day, but you're only paying $6 a day, at the end of the month, you're going to owe the bank $240. So if you wonder how you could possibly sleep in until noon every day of Christmas break, this is the reason. And this is exactly what was happening to me during um, undergrad. My college years is as soon as break would hit, I was sleeping until around noon every day. Uh Yeah, same here. (laughs) I would do that too. I would totally catch up on sleep. And I was just like, why am I so tired? I slept like 12 hours last night. And you're just wondering. It's like, well, that's why. It's because you owed the bank. (laughs) Um, On a related note, how do you know if you're getting enough sleep? In an ideal world, you should be able to wake up and have enough energy, focus, and physical stamina to get through an entire day without feeling very tired or needing caffeine. If you were to put yourself in a dark, quiet room, would you fall asleep right away? If so, then that means you're probably sleep deprived. Do you think you would fall asleep in a dark, quiet room right now, Dr. Marina? Um, Some days, yes, <laughs> but some days, no. I do tend to get a bit sleepy in the afternoon, but this can be normal for most of us. That's why some countries like Spain, which is actually where my, where my grandfather's from, have a siesta time in the afternoon, a sort of a nap or resting time, because... Um, 
our circadian rhythms were like the, you know, the part of our body that controls our sleep and wake cycles. Um, it actually does tend to cause us to get a little bit sleepy in the afternoon. But modern society, unfortunately, is structured in most countries so that you can't just like mm-hmm. stop doing what you're doing and go take a nap. But what about you, Dr. Zulma? Would you fall asleep if you were put in a dark, quiet room right now? Yeah, but I think my situation, even though I sleep well, I think my brain is very sensitive to darkness because I think it immediately releases a bunch of melatonin. Uh huh. I literally can sleep a full night, be well rested, but within minutes of being in a dark room, I'll start yawning and I can go to sleep. Uh-huh. And it, it was funny because when I was in medical school and in residency, when I would do radiology rotations, obviously, for those of you that are in high school or undergrad, radiology is, uh, are, they're the doctors that are looking at all the images, the x-rays, the CTs, everything. And it's always in a dark room. Well, when I was doing those rotations, literally like 10 to 15 minutes into being there and watching these images, I'd start yawning and my attending would laugh at me. And she's like, you can never be a radiologist. <laughs> but I, it, it's a good thing for me because I easily fall asleep. So I, it, it favors me in that way. I don't have a problem falling asleep. I know some people do. Um, but, but yeah, with me and darkness, I can literally just sleep. Yeah. That's interesting, because maybe it's just a little bit of sleep debt, you know, it's not necessarily because you know, you have a busy life, you have to get up at a certain time for work every morning, Mm -hmm. you know, it's very few people who can actually just like wake up spontaneously, most of us wake up to an alarm. Mm -hmm. And the fact that we're waking up to an alarm tells us that we're probably getting just a little bit less sleep than we actually need. Mm -hmm. So that's something to keep in mind that almost nobody is getting exactly as much sleep as they need every single night. And that's, that's reasonable. I mean, life is life. Very true. I also know a lot of us rely on caffeine to get us through the morning or through the day or through the night. But we do want to caution you against overusing caffeine, whether it's in the form of coffee or energy drinks or caffeine pills or whatever your favorite method is. Drinking caffeine in the afternoon or evening can actually interfere with your body's ability to fall asleep and to get a good quality sleep during the night. So if you find that you're having trouble falling asleep or staying asleep, just be careful with caffeine. Either try to limit it to only like one cup in the morning or try to eliminate it if you can. Yes. Any thoughts on that, Dr. Zuma? Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I think too, when you, when you drink too much caffeine, it also can then promote headaches later <laughs> as uh-huh. well, right? And then it also, if you have caffeine too late, It'll also disrupt your nighttime falling asleep as well. So again, you're, it's, it's all about training your brain to fall asleep on its own without having to use any other substance to stay awake as well. So um, I, I used to drink a lot, of caf- a lot of coffee when I was in an undergrad to stay up, but it was because I was not... I didn't have a good sleep hygiene, <laughs> mm-hmm. but if, if you really get into the practice of that, of, of sleeping well, you'll find that you don't need coffee. And as Dr. Marina mentioned, sometimes after you have lunch, especially you get tired, um, that siesta time. Um, I found that when you're feeling tired, if you go and actually uh, work out, it'll boost up your adrenaline again and wake you up again as well, Mm -hmm. instead of going to coffee. Yeah, 
And even if you don't have time to do an official workout, if you just go walk around for a mm -hmm. while, like it'll wake you up. Yes, for sure. I also know a lot of people struggle to fall asleep or stay asleep at night for other reasons. There are a lot of things that can cause trouble sleeping. If this is you, please go talk to a doctor or to a sleep psychologist about what you can do to improve your sleep. There are so many options that can help depending on the specific cause of your sleep troubles, from meditation to medication to a sleep apnea machine. When I was in medical school, actually, I started to have something called restless legs syndrome. And I think it actually was related to a little bit of iron deficiency anemia that I found out about later. But I would just move my legs a lot at night. And that was interfering with really getting a good quality sleep. And my poor husband, too, <laughs> it interfered with his sleep as well. And so I ended up going to a sleep lab, like a sleep um, psychologist, basically, who did a sleep study and they diagnosed me and I was on medication for a while. And eventually I did find out it was related to my iron levels. So I was able to take iron supplements to fix the problem and I haven't had it again. But yeah, there are so many things. A lot of people have something called obstructive sleep apnea. If you snore a lot, then that's a red flag that you might have <laughs> obstructive sleep apnea. And what's happening with that is that the tissue around your like airway is actually collapsing and closing while you sleep. And so you're not actually able to breathe for short periods of time while you're asleep. And so there's not enough oxygen going to your brain for short periods of time throughout the whole night. And because your brain is not getting enough oxygen, the sleep cycles get disturbed. And so you might be getting eight hours, you know, in bed at night, but you wake up and you're still tired. You're still sleepy throughout the day. You're not functioning as well. It increases your risk for cardiovascular disease and other health problems. So if that's you, please, please go talk to a doctor, get evaluated and figure out what you need to do. There are so many options depending on what your specific issue might be. Yeah. And, and it's important to know, as Dr. Marina said, that sleep is so important. And we know that, that there's actually a specialty within medicine. So there are physicians, uh, doctors who specialize in what is called sleep medicine, just because we know that there could be long-term effects, um, whether it's psychiatrically or even health-wise, if you don't sleep well. If you are struggling with the sleep issue, there are actual physicians who can help you with this too. Excellent point. All right, enough about sleep. You've probably got your ear talked off about sleep by now, but so self-care tip number two, what is it, Dr. Zuma? Practice self-compassion. Exactly. Self-compassion is a relatively new phrase in the world of psychology, but the idea itself of self-compassion is really as old as humanity. The basic idea is this, be nice to yourself. So one thing I love about self-compassion is that it doesn't cost anything. It doesn't take a lot of time, and it's something you can practice doing by yourself. You can also practice doing it with a trusted friend, a family member, or therapist, but that's up to you. Exactly. So have you ever messed up at something? Maybe you missed a shot in a game. Maybe you missed your friend's birthday or your mom's birthday or dad's birthday, or you forgot to turn in an assignment or you got a bad grade on a test or you felt like you let down your parents. And after that happened, have you ever been a jerk to yourself about it afterward? For example, have you ever said things to yourself like this? 
I am such a loser. I can't believe I forgot I'm such a terrible person. I'm no good at this. I might as well give up. I'm such a bad son, daughter, friend, student, etc. Now imagine that you have a favorite niece or nephew or child that you absolutely love and adore. And they came to you saying that they missed a shot in a game or they missed someone's birthday or they forgot to do something or they got a bad grade on the test or they disappointed their parents or you. What would you tell this niece or nephew or child that you love? Would you tell them the same things that you tell yourself? For example, would you say, you are such a loser, you deserve to lose? Or, I can't believe you forgot, you're such a terrible person. Or, you're no good at that, you might as well give up. Or, you're such a bad person. So hopefully you're thinking, of course I would never say that to this niece or nephew or child that I love. Dr. Zulma, can you imagine saying those mean things to your own children? Of course not. I, I try to teach them that forgiveness of others is just as important as forgiveness of yourself. Great. Well, I'm glad they're getting that lesson early from you because I think a lot of people don't get it. Yeah. I don't think I really got that lesson growing up. Maybe it was there, but it wasn't really loud or clear enough for me to really absorb it. If you're totally honest, though, have you ever said mean things like that to yourself, Dr. Zoma? Definitely, yes. I still get, I mean, even until today, I still get those transient thoughts when something goes bad, but I think that's common for everyone. However, something different that I do now compared to my high school self or college self is the dialogue that goes on in my mind as convincing myself to forgive myself and realistically expect I messed up today and I'm going to continue to mess up in the future. Mm -hmm. And it's not that I'm a loser, I'm stupid, I'm a bad person, but simply I'm not perfect. And you know what? I will never be perfect and that's okay. I try to learn from my mistakes to see how I can avoid them in the future, though. I also let myself grieve for a little bit when the bad situation happens. But then I tell myself, all right, time to get up and move on. Yeah. But thinking back to like your college years, like what were some of the things that would go through your mind at times? Oh, I mean, if I'm thinking back in the college years, just if I got a bad grade, Mm -hmm. I would really sulk in that. Even when it came to like leaving for college, as I've, I've mentioned before, that guilt that's associated with me leaving home and leaving my family behind, then, you know, you even start feeding these thoughts like, oh, you know, you're a bad daughter or whatever it might be, especially when something goes wrong and you're not there. So, I mean, throughout college, I mean, even in medical school, if uh, if I was on a rotation and then an attending asked me a question and I didn't know the answer, I mean, I remember it, it would just totally bog me down for the rest of the day. Like, how did I forget? How did I not know that? I knew that. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure you can exactly. relate. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, I think I, I've been a major jerk to myself in my mind. Like if you think about that dialogue that goes on inside your brain constantly, mm-hmm. 24 hours a day, like, well, except when you're sleeping. Yeah, I mean, things would happen. I would like get a bad grade on a test. Like, why am I so dumb? Like, why can't I do this? That kind of stuff. Why is everyone else smarter than me? And that kind of negative self-talk, it just feeds into itself. And it instead of helping you to get better or become better or motivate you, it actually defeats you and Mm -hmm. it makes you want to give up. 
So being like learning to be nice to myself has been really transformative because instead of constantly being a jerk to myself in my mind and wanting to give up, um, I forgive myself and I say, you know, this is just part of the human experience. Mm -hmm. This is normal. Um, you're going to grow because of these challenges. And, and just it's so much better because <laughs> it's so much more motivating. And it's like a friend that you go to that just encourages you and helps to lift you up instead of someone who is like tearing you down. And your own brain can do that to you. Yes, you're your worst enemy, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you yeah. know, something I, I, I'm trying to instill in my kids since they're still small, they're in elementary, uh, elementary aged level. I tell them that every time they make a mistake, they learn from it and their brain grows. And it's interesting, you say it so much to you know, my five-year-old will sometimes, oh, I made a mistake, but it's okay. I learned something, right? My, I think my brain got bigger. Mommy, does my brain look bigger? <laughs> so, so I mean, and literally I'm teaching them and here I am as an adult barely learning it. <laughs> so uh-huh. it's important for you to feed these things to you that, you know, it's okay to make mistakes. You're not the dumbest person in the world. And we literally will assume that our, you know, like a classmate, you think your classmates never make mistakes. That's baloney. <laughs> they mm-hmm. make mistakes. Exactly. They do the same things. But for some reason, we're so hard on ourselves. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because if you ever have caught yourself being hypercritical or rudely judgmental of yourself, like, do you ever ask yourself, why is it okay for me to be so mean to me? But not like I w- not to someone else. I would never do that to someone I love. Mm-hmm. So self compassion really teaches us to practice loving ourselves, turning that love not just outward to other people, but inward towards ourselves. It helps us to learn to start treating ourselves with as much kindness and respect and compassion as we would have for a friend or family member or child. So instead of beating ourselves up when we mess up or we make a mistake, we can train our brains with practice over time to show us compassion. So instead of those mean things that we went over, we can say things instead like this. I'm really disappointed that I missed that shot, but I did my best and nobody's perfect. Or, wow, I'm so sorry that I forgot something important, but that's okay. And I'm going to try to do better next time. Or I'm not as good at this as I want to be, but I care about it enough to keep trying. And I know that I can get better with practice. That's that growth mindset we've talked about before, too. Or I mess up sometimes, but that doesn't make me a bad person. It just makes me human. In fact, not being perfect helps me be able to relate to other people who aren't perfect. And like you said, Dr. Zulman, nobody is perfect, right? (laughs) Yeah. So wouldn't those things feel so much better? Don't you think that you could accomplish more in your life if you were just nice to yourself more often? Don't you think you would spend less time feeling less than, guilty, ashamed, and all those negative emotions that muck up our brains? If I could go back in time, like I mentioned, I would have saved myself a lot of crying, a lot of depression, a lot of worry if I had learned to be nicer to myself when I was younger, especially in college and medical school. What about you, Dr. Zuma? Yeah, I I agree. I'm pretty stubborn. So I used to stay stuck in that negative zone for a while, even sometimes a couple of days. And I really would let my self-worth go and I would cry a lot. If I would have started practicing this mindset from early childhood, 
I really think that my self-esteem would have been better when I was struggling with it in high school and undergrad. And perhaps I could have even dodged depression that I had for so many years. Mm -hmm. You know, this might not really seem like self-care, what we're talking about, the self-compassion, but I promise you that it is self-care. It's like the deepest, most important type of self-care. It's loving yourself, right? It's taking care of your emotional health, which is so important. So many of us just try to shove our emotions under the rug. And then eventually they catch up with us. <laughs> and that's what sometimes, you know, starts out as depression or panic attacks is because we've learned to just shove our emotions under the rug and like pretend they're not there in order to just keep going in life and do the things we need to do. And we were never really taught to manage our emotions. But this self-compassion is really such an important part of learning how to recognize and acknowledge and take care of your emotions. So even though it might not sound like self-care in a way, it really is, I promise. All right, self-care tip number three. What is it, Dr. Zuma? Make time for something that feeds your spirit. Very important. <laughs> exactly. So we can get so caught up in the busyness of life that we forget to feed our spirit. Now, I call it spirit, but you can think of it as your inner child, your creative self, your higher self, your core, your soul, whatever other term you prefer. It's the part of us that needs to connect to people or activities we love in order to be nurtured and to feel whole. And again, another thing I love about this is it does not have to cost anything. It doesn't have to take much time, but only you know what feeds your soul. So for me, connecting to my creative side is really important. When I was in medical school and I had that dreaded year where I failed anatomy and I had to repeat a year, I was held back. I found that I needed to start doing something to nurture my spirit because I was in a, you know, depressed place because of everything that had happened. And my mom, who liked sewing growing up, she had given me her old sewing machine. So I went and I bought some fabric and some patterns, nothing too expensive. <laughs> um, in fact, some of the fabric was stuff, old fabric my mom had given me. And I started teaching myself to sew, uh, especially clothing. I ended up making some nice dresses for myself and some adorable clothes for my friend's kids. And it was so nice because it allowed me to use my hands and my creative side in a way that I really didn't get to do during medical school. And it just brought me a sense of accomplishment and a sense of joy during that time that was really difficult. I also find that my spirit personally needs to spend time in nature sometimes, maybe not every day, but sometimes. And in the past, I used to live close to an ocean. We went to med school in UC San Diego, close to the ocean. And then later on, I worked there. So I would take time to go running by the ocean and just soak in the views. Nowadays, I spend time in my garden getting my hands dirty, planting things and pruning things and harvesting things. And I'll end up with like dirt all under my fingernails <laughs> and everything from just working in my garden. But just like having that connection to nature and to plants and yeah, just mother nature in general, it really helps me. And I really enjoy doing that. It also gives me time to just reflect and think while I keep my hands busy. The same thing with sewing. It's like I'm keeping my hands busy but I'm having time to really think and reflect and meditate. Dr. Zulma, what's something or what are a few things that feed your spirit? Yeah, you know, when I think back to when I was an undergrad in medical school, 
finding something that fed my spirit was so important. And it really is what saved me from not crashing under all that stress. And for me, it was dancing, but being part of dance groups. So I love to do dance performances. So I ended up joining several dance groups throughout those years. And it just really made me really happy. And it gave me something to look forward to, even to the practices say it wasn't the official performance. I really, really enjoyed that. Today, I think what feeds my spirit, because this will evolve as your situation changes, as you go from being a student from medical school to residency to maybe even, you know, getting married, and then if you have kids. So today, I enjoy running in the outdoors and going on hikes. So again, just like Dr. Marina, just being out in nature. But I will say, I think my greatest secret indulgence nowadays is having time to myself, Uh just because I don't get a lot of that, you know, working, married and having little kids. It doesn't matter what I'm doing, but I love being by myself. And just it could be going to a store, it could be doing nothing. (laughs) And I currently do this twice a week. And I look forward to it every time. Even if I'm alone, just drinking coffee, it's amazing. (laughs) Yeah. I like that you mentioned the doing nothing because, you know, I think doing nothing is actually very underappreciated in our society. Uh Like we have this idea that we're supposed to be constantly busy, constantly doing something, constantly productive, constantly accomplishing things in order to be great and blah, blah, blah. But you know, the art of doing nothing, like it's actually a thing, like you need time to just quiet your mind, you need time to daydream. Daydreaming is actually one of my favorite things to do. Like I can just lie on the couch and like, be with my thoughts for 30 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> like, And my husband who has ADHD, he's like, how can you do that? <laughs> he has to be listening to something constantly or music. But for me, I actually really like it. And that's mm-hmm. sometimes why I like with sewing and with gardening, I just sometimes I will listen to an audio book, you know, or, or enjoy music. But sometimes I just like contemplating the universe. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's that daydreaming It's actually good for you. There's research coming out that shows that giving yourself times of just quiet and of doing nothing It's actually good for your mental health and your creativity, because that's actually an opportunity for your mind to come up with really creative solutions to either your life's problems or to like, you know, your field of science or your profession. Creativity tends to come out in those moments of doing nothing. Maybe that's why I like it, right? (laughs) Yeah. Hey, yeah. (laughs) There are many reasons to like it. All right. So for our listeners, You might want to spend some time thinking about what activities feed your spirit. It might be spending time in nature. And keep in mind, it does not have to be going to Hawaii. (laughs) It can just be going to a park or a field or a hiking trail or whatever it is that you have nearby that is part of nature. Or it can even be spending time with animals, too. It could be listening to or playing music. It could be doing something creative like cooking, baking, drawing, painting, knitting, crocheting, sewing, or making crafts. It can be doing something physical like running, playing basketball, doing yoga. It can be doing something that gives you time to think, reflect, or contemplate like daydreaming, journaling, or meditating. You can write poetry or prose, whatever you prefer. Or you can spend time with family and friends who uplift you. Now, keep in mind, people who uplift you, don't go spend time with your crazy cousin who's always got drama, you know, and wants you to deal with her drama. Like, 
go spend spending time with people who truly are calming or a positive influence for you. That can also be something that feeds your spirit. And you might not be able to do these things all of the time because life gets busy, but try to find time on weekends or on vacations to fit these in and make them a priority. Recognize that like your spirit can be starved of these things and you're going to feel off. You're going to feel like there's something off in your life if you're not making time for these things that feed your spirit. If you do make time for them, your spirit will feel renewed and you will be better able to face whatever challenges are happening in your life. That's all we have for you today. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. Any last thoughts, Dr. Zulma? Just really try practicing. I know it sounds like a lot of jumbo mumbo sometimes when you hear these topics discussed, but if I can just really, really stress that if you start practicing them early on, if you're in high school now or in college, start practicing, you're going to see how much further you get ahead as you get closer and closer to becoming a doctor. And even after, if this will also, you'll see the positive outcomes with your relationships, whether it's with your partner, your children, your friends, and most importantly, with yourself. Exactly. Well, yeah. So remember these three tips, get enough sleep, be nice to yourself or practice self-compassion and take time to do things that feed your spirit. So those are our three general pieces of advice today when it comes to learning to take care of yourself. Remember, they don't have to cost money. They don't have to take a lot of time. Pick one or pick all three, whatever you have time for in your life. Be realistic about what you can accomplish. Be kind to yourself in setting expectations. Thanks so much for listening to us today. We hope you have a wonderful week and we will catch you next time. Peace and love, everyone.